0: Well, if um, if you've got your Bible or a device and you'd like to turn to it, uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44, which includes last week's gospel reading. You might call me chicken for not preaching, as I do most of the time on this week's gospel reading, and you might be able to make the charge stick. Because any reading that starts out, and Mark here is quoting the words of Jesus, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then the writer himself adds in parenthesis this editorial comment, let the reader understand. I mean, it, it might be a passage that you think twice about preaching. I mean, even Mark doesn't want to try any exposition on that one. He kind of is like, mm, I don't know. At least three commentaries I looked at this week said, this is one of the most difficult verses in Mark's gospel and in all of the entire New Testament. So not one that you jump into without a lot of thought, study, and prayer, which I am absolutely willing to, to give but that's not the real reason that I'm not going to preach and going on that passage and instead going to preach on last week's gospel reading. Because as Steve was teaching so excellently last Sunday from the story in 1 Kings of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath about the why, about why life in community and intercessory prayer are so vital to us coming to truly know God and to grow into maturity in him. I couldn't escape the feeling that the stories of these two widows coupled in the lectionary, the widow of Zarephath and Jesus's commentary about the poor widow offering her last two nearly worthless copper coins to the temple treasury are meant to teach us something profound about God's nature and what it means to respond to him in faith. And so, it might be worth going back there. The last few paragraphs of Mark chapter chapter 12 tell us of Jesus' final public engagement with the authorities in the temple courtyard prior to his arrest and crucifixion. After this, Jesus will spend time exclusively with his disciples and friends, Timeline-wise, we're in about the middle of Holy Week, and it's been an eventful week so far. Since the triumphal entry just a few days before, he's overturned the tables of the merchants and money changers in the temple, condemned the entire Jewish sacrificial system, and pretty thoroughly castigated Israel's religious leadership. And while he's influencing lots of people, Mark tells us that large crowds were listening to him with great delight, he's clearly not making friends, at least not within the majority of Israel's religious leaders. This final scene in the temple courtyard includes a dense and difficult riddle Jesus poses to those around him and one that they cannot answer. And then, after a brief warning about the scribes, moves to a small but striking incident involving this destitute widow at the temple treasury. The riddle Jesus poses and in the incident at the treasury seem, on one level, unrelated, completely unrelated to each other. And even though they're happening one right after the other, they're usually treated separately the second one being by far the more well-known of the two. The story of the widow's offering, Mark 12, beginning in verse 35. I'm going to just read through that again. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he David's son? And then he sat down opposite the temple treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. So Jesus takes up a place just outside the court of the Gentiles, which is incidentally where he just tossed out the money changers two days before, near the gate called Beautiful, where the temple treasury was located. It held 13 trumpet-shaped collection boxes for the day-to-day sacrifices and, and expenses of the temple. Some rich people put in large sums of money. Then came a poor widow. She put in two copper coins called leptons, which literally mean thin one. So a moniker that's never been used for me. They were the smallest of all the coins and were worth next to nothing. And yet Jesus said that her tiny contribution was greater than all the others because the others had thrown in what they could spare easily enough and still have plenty left while the widow had given all She had, which sounds interestingly like the widow of Zarephath when Elijah goes and says, yeah, you're going to bake your last loaf of bread so you and your son can die. Why don't you bake one for me instead? She was about ready, literally, to Elijah. She was giving everything that she had to him. The story's lessons... In the gospel story, the story's lessons in sacrificial giving are obvious and powerful, and you've probably all heard them before, and they're in nearly every commentary. Traditionally, here's the what, the three applications of this passage, and they're all here. First, real giving is sacrificial. The amount of a gift matters never matters so much as its cost to the giver. Not the size of the gift, but the sacrifice, because true generosity genuinely hurts. And so for many of us, it's a very real question if our giving is ever truly genuine sacrifice. But I must confess to you that I am selfish, and I would bet you are too, at least just a little, You know why? Because we're human. And so few of us can read this story without some sense of conviction. Because we've never given like that. Two, real giving has a certain recklessness of trust about it this widow could have kept one coin and absolutely no one would have noticed. It wouldn't have been much, but she would have had something. And yet she gave everything that she had. And there's great symbolic truth here. It's our tragedy that there's so often some part or even often large parts of our lives, some part of our activities, some part of our treasure Some part of ourselves that we do not give to Christ, that we withhold from his lordship. And this is actually a matter of trust. Because if we entrust it all to him, will we still get what we want? Will there still be enough? And because we do not fully trust, we never fully experience the abundance of God. This, by the way, is literally the only thing in Scripture God ever challenges his people to test him in. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there, may be found that, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Three, real giving is proportional. It's a strange and lovely thing that the woman that in the New Testament and Jesus hand down to history, the exemplar of generosity, actually gave what was the equivalent of one sixty-fourth of one day's wage for a common laborer. Maybe we may feel that we don't have much, if anything, in the way of material or personal gifts to give to Christ. But if we put all that we have and are at his disposal, he can do things with it and with us that are beyond our imagining. He promises to do that. So that's the what. That's the what question. What should we do? The answer is simple, though not easy. Give sacrificially, recklessly and proportionally, exactly as the widow did. And while most of us agree, most of us don't do it because the cost is simply too high. There's a good friend and seminary professor from the 80s who's now a successful executive coach used to say the what question is easy. But until you answer the why question, the cost is always too high. And if we separate the story of the widow from the riddle from Psalm 110 that Jesus poses, the what is what we get. It's only when we consider them together that the why question is answered. So it's important that we take a step back and look at the riddle, the question about David's Lord and David's son. Up to this point in the temple, Jesus was being asked questions, but now he seizes the initiative and asks a question himself. The issue of Messiah in general, and Jesus as Messiah in particular, has been swirling around Mark's gospel most of the time, and particularly since chapter 8, and now Jesus just takes it head on. Who exactly will Messiah be, and what can we say about him? The question belongs here in Mark, not least because what Jesus had had just done in the temple in chasing out the money changers had raised an obvious question. Who does he think he is doing these things in the temple? And the implied answer was Messiah, the one who has authority over the temple. Several of the subsequent discussions after that, the question about John the Baptist, the parable of the murderous tenant farmers, and the question about paying taxes to Caesar all relate to this in various ways. And imposing this riddle, Jesus appears at first to challenge the normal Jewish assumption based on long scriptural tradition, beginning including Psalm 2, Psalm 89, and particularly 2 Samuel 17, that the great coming king would be born from the family of David. But that's not at all what he's doing. Neither Jesus nor Mark was coming close to questioning whether the Messiah would be a descendant of David, and in fact, central to the belief of the whole early church was that he was indeed from that family. This is clearly stated in Romans 1, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, and the announcement of the angel Gabriel in Luke 2, among other places. What we find in Jesus' question instead is a challenge to the idea that Messiah will simply be a king from David's line. No, no, he will be David's lord as well as David's son. And to make this point, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, which, if you're ever involved in a Bible trivia game, is the most often quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament, Psalm 110, which became very important to the early church as a way of talking about Jesus' ascension and lordship over the world. It refers to someone David calls my Lord. Someone, in other words, who is apparently senior to David, not junior as a descendant would be. Who can this be? Well, we should be used by now in the Gospel of Mark to Jesus saying things that point to realities far beyond themselves, teaching in parables, posing riddles. He doesn't totally explain, pointing towards a larger truth. He's eager to communicate, but which cannot be spoken in straightforward language. Or at least not at that time. What he seems to be saying is that when you understand messiahship in terms of this psalm, you find that Messiah, who will of course be a descendant of David, will also be the one whom David will rightly call Lord. He's raising the corner of the curtain that hides the biggest secret of all. Not only is he Messiah coming with royal authority to Jerusalem and the temple, not only is he going to die to bring about the true kingdom, although the disciples haven't fully grasped that yet. He's doing all of this not simply as David's son but as David's Lord. N.T. Wright It says it didn't take the early church long to find that some of the ways of talking about Messiah, Son of God, for instance, could be filled with new meaning, capable of expressing an astonishing and, and revolutionary belief that Jesus was not just speaking about Israel's God acting decisively to establish the kingdom. Jesus was embodying Israel's God, actually doing all of this messiahship was so to speak a suit of clothes designed for god's own use a suit he himself would wear and jesus saw this as foreshadowed in the psalms themselves psalm 110 continues beyond the verse jesus quoted to speak of this coming king or lord as a priest and as a priest forever as we've seen, as we've been reading through Hebrews as a lectionary companion to Mark, this passage is therefore pointing towards something that's been bubbling just under the surface ever since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and will come to its climax when Jesus confronts Caiaphas in chapter 14. Jesus is claiming his authority over the temple, claiming the right To declare God's judgment on it, not simply as a prophet, but as a king, not simply as a king, but as a true priest, not simply as the king priest, but as the incarnation, the living embodiment of Israel's God. That's what's happening here. The chapter continues with a brief warning against the pomp and pretension of some of the experts in the law, the lawyers of Jesus' day. They put on airs and have a great reputation for piety, but are interested primarily or only in lining their pockets. The world hasn't changed much. Not only lawyers, but also politicians and other leaders in the civic world, as well as some leaders in the church, are again and again discovered to be putting on a show to gain favor, while underneath, they're after money or power or both. What a contrast. And this is critical to putting this passage together. When David's Lord became David's son, He did not use this as a means of gaining power or wealth, but instead gave up his life. And giving up one's life is the singular theme of this final short theme, scene, where Jesus contrasts the rich people who can afford to give plenty to the temple treasury and make sure others see that they're doing it with the poor widow who has given literally her whole life the two copper coins that were all that she had to live on that day. Her sacrifice, though small, was total. So when we read this story in light of the riddle about David's Lord and David's son, we discover an incredible affinity looking on One may have thought that the widow was merely, quote-unquote, putting in two copper coins, but she was, in fact, putting in everything that she had. One may have thought Messiah was, quote-unquote, merely David's son, a human being among other human beings. But in fact, in Jesus, the Messiah, Israel's God, has given himself totally, given all that he had and was. You see, in this story... God himself is the widow pouring himself out, making himself poor and powerless. He gave everything. This same thing theme is picked up by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 when he was teaching the Corinthians about the call to generous giving. In other words, the what. But in verse 9, we get the why. For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which we're preparing to celebrate particularly in the seasons of Advent and Christmas, God poured himself out, became poor and powerless Gave everything he had so that we might experience the abundance of forgiveness and grace. So that we might inherit the richness of eternal life. So that anyone, simply by calling on his name, by faith alone, would be saved. And that's the why. That's why we give. We give sacrificially not as a drudgery or some kind of legalistic obligation, but as a joyful and confident response to the overwhelming generosity of a self-denying, self-emptying, self-sacrificing, self-revealing, self-disclosing, selfless God, the exact image of whom we see in Jesus. And we're told in the second chapter of Philippians to have the very same mindset as Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore,